at all, you know that I love to eat. And it doesn't really matter the food that I eat. It just matters that the food that I eat gets into my belly. It can be a nice meal like the Thanksgiving meal that we just celebrated this week. Or it can be fast like McDonald's on the way home. It doesn't really matter the food. I just love to eat it. I've always loved to eat. But it wasn't until I met Celeste, my wife, that I actually learned how to eat. Here's how most of our early dates went. We would go out to a restaurant that wasn't a chain. That's also something I learned in dating. Don't take her to a chain restaurant. Do something a little bit nicer. Um, She would order her meal. I would order my meal. They would bring to us all good so far. Um, But as I started to partake of my meal, emphasis on the my, in my purview, I started to see her hand and her fork coming towards my plate. To which out of instincts or reflex, I'm not really sure, I started to turn away from her so she couldn't touch anything near my plate. This went on probably a lot longer than it should, and she put up with a lot. Because you see, my approach to eating was all about mine. Celeste's approach to eating, because she's a normal human being, was more yours, ours. For me, eating was about how much could I consume. For Celeste, it was how much can we connect. So I needed to learn how to eat. And that is Paul's message to us in 1 Corinthians 11. The church at Corinthians, if you know anything about it, was struggling with so much. Paul's letter to the church is his most personal and his most painful because the church is divided over so many different things. And you know what he tells them to do? What would be an answer to some of their problems? They need to learn how to eat. And maybe that's what you need this morning too. We celebrate this meal every single week. We believe that this meal is central to our Christian faith, but we often don't know why. So let's look at it together this morning, and hopefully by the end of this sermon, we can all learn from the Lord Jesus how to eat. Three points from this passage to see why the Lord's Supper is so important to us. Uh, first, we're going to look at the meal. Second, we're going to look at the meaning. And third, we're going to look at the mission. And I'll go through those one after the other. First, let's look at the meal itself. Look back at verse 23. Paul writes, and he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. The first thing Paul wants to make the church aware of, that that this is not his meal, this is Jesus' meal. What they're doing is not new. What we do each week is not new. It was actually handed to us by Jesus himself. And have you ever wondered why? Have you ever wondered, out of all the things Jesus could have left his church, why on earth did he pick a meal? And if you're not a Christian in here this morning, if you're a guest with your family over on Thanksgiving, or you're just a guest exploring some of the deeper questions of faith and life, that's a really good question to ask about Christianity. Why do you all practice a meal? Why does your Savior, who you hold up to, why does he leave you with a meal? Well, to understand the importance of this meal, you have to understand the context. Look at verse 25. Paul is quoting Jesus' words, And he says, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. So the context of this meal is a covenant. Meaning, the reason this meal is so important is because it's a fulfillment of all that God has promised his people from the very beginning. When Jesus leaves us with a meal, it is not random. But in a sense, this meal is the whole story of the Bible. In fact, you can trace the whole biblical story as a story of food. One author writes, the Bible tells a story of a people who hunger and a God who feeds. 
That is the story of the Bible. And you can probably start to imagine some stories that speak to that. The story of the Bible is a people who hunger and a God who feeds. Think back to the very beginning. Think back to the Garden of Eden. In Genesis 2, God's first words to Adam were a menu. In Genesis 2.16, he tells Adam, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. Showing what mankind is made for is eating a meal in the presence of God. And when you get to Genesis 3, when everything goes wrong, it's not a surprise that it goes wrong over food. Despite God's generosity, Adam and Eve reject God. How? Through eating. Not wanting to depend on the Lord, they turn to their own ways. They turn to providing for them own, their own selves. And how does God respond? Do you remember? He responds by pursuing his people through his promises. He responds by making a covenant with them. And that pattern continues all the way up to the great redemptive event in the Old Testament, the Exodus where God would free his people from the slavery of Egypt through the passing of the Red Sea. And you know what they did the night before the Exodus? We read about it in Exodus 12 in our Old Testament passage. They ate a meal together. They ate a meal, the Passover meal, where the main dish was a lamb because that's how they were going to be redeemed. Through the sacrifice of that lamb, blood was put on their door and God's judgment would pass over them. Hence the Passover meal. And every year at that same time, God's people would gather together to eat of this meal to remember the Passover and their redemption, not just in the past, but for them today. It was a picture for generation after generation that God had saved them through the blood of a lamb. And now we fast forward to the New Testament. And it's no surprise again that the night before Jesus was crucified, it was the same time as the Passover meal. And the disciples go to that meal just like they would go to any other Passover meal they celebrated year after year. And nothing really seems out of the ordinary at that meal until Jesus starts talking. What was normally said at this meal by the host is this. The host would hold up the bread and the host would say, This is the bread of affliction that our forefathers ate in the land of Egypt. Showing that this bread pointed them back to the exodus. But that's not what Jesus said. Jesus, instead of pointing back to the Exodus, points to himself. He said, this is my body given for you. And then he does the exact same thing with the cup. He does not point back to Exodus. Jesus again points to himself saying, this cup is the new covenant through my blood. And so while all that's raising eyebrows, there's one glaring absence from this meal. All the gospel writers leave this part out. So does our passage here in 1 Corinthians. What is missing from this meal? Where's the lamb? That was a central aspect. That was the sacrifice. And I don't know if it clicked for them then, but it would definitely click for them now. There is no lamb on the table because the lamb is at the table. There is no lamb on the table because the lamb is hosting the table. Our assurance of pardon told us, behold, Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of this world. In this meal, Jesus is showing them how he is the fulfillment of all God's promises since the very beginning. God is going to be with his people. How? 
the sacrifice of his son, the lamb of God. And in this way, I hope you see that the Lord's Supper is not just something random. It's not some add-on that we just do. It's essential to showing us all that Jesus came to do. The Bible is a story of a people who hunger and a God who feeds. So what does Jesus do for us? He hosts the Passover meal, and the next day he goes to the cross. And this makes Christianity different than every other religion and every other belief system. I remember the first time I experienced that, how different Christianity was based on other religions. It was my junior year of college. That summer I went to Thailand with Campus Outreach. And I don't know if you know this about Thailand, but back then Thailand was 95% Buddhist. It was such a majority Buddhist culture that it influenced the whole country. It was completely uh, Buddhist culture. It was completely Buddhist country. And it was on our first day there, we landed in Konkin and we got a tour of the city. And when you tour any major city in Thailand, there are temples everywhere. Everywhere you look, there's a temple here, a temple there. And when you go in those temples, you'd see all these different shrines with people on their knees in prayer. And do you know what those shrines are covered with? Those shrines are covered with all kinds of different food. From the grocery to home cooking, every possible food you can imagine was placed on those shrines, offered as sacrifices to the gods to appease them. And I remember thinking, I wish they knew about Jesus. I wish they knew about Jesus because in Christianity, unlike every other religion, we don't sacrifice for the gods. Our God sacrifices for us. Christianity, unlike every other religion, we don't show up each week to feed him. He shows up each week to feed us. Each week at this table, as you come, Jesus says, take and eat. And in those words, Derek Kidner traces those words all the way from Jesus back to the Garden of Eden. Derek Kidner, in his commentary on Genesis, says, with those words, Jesus is reversing the curse from the garden. In the garden, Satan said to Adam and Eve, take and eat. And Kidner writes, so simple that act, so hard it's undoing. Jesus would have to taste poverty and death before he'd take those words of Satan and use them for our salvation. You see, on the cross, Jesus takes the devil's words of take and eat, our destruction, and now turns them into the feast we celebrate each week. So why do we have a meal? It's a fulfillment of all that Jesus came to do. This bread and this wine are visible words that shout to our hearts, God has done it. God has done it by providing himself. So let's look at that next. We've seen the meal and what Jesus has done in our past. Now let's look at the meaning and see what Jesus is doing in our present. What is the meaning of this meal? That's where much of the confusion lies with the Lord's Supper. Much of the confusion with the Lord's Supper is not actually in its practice, but in its meaning. If I were to ask you today, is the Lord's Supper important for you? You would most likely, of course, say yes. But if I were to ask you some follow-up questions, why is it so important? What does it practically do in your life? How is it relevant to your growth and godliness? That would be harder to answer. So when we come to this meal, what does it mean for us? Jesus tells us two times from the words of the Apostle Paul. 
Verse 24, he says, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And then verse 25, he repeats it. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. What's the meaning of this meal? Jesus says remembrance. But that word is vastly misunderstood, especially in the American church. And that misunderstanding of that word remembrance has honestly led to a neglect of the Lord's Supper and, and the, the deeper issue, a, a lack of nourishment for our souls. So we really need to understand what that word remembrance means. You see, we've interpreted that word remembrance in our own categories instead of biblical categories. When we hear the word remembrance, we oftentimes only think in our heads. We think remembrance means we need to recall something to our minds, like we have forgotten something and we need to remember it. So the Lord's Supper just becomes, I have forgotten about Jesus again this week. I take of this supper. I need to remember and recall all that he's done for me. But the Lord's Supper, remember, is not about our devotion to God. It's primarily about God's devotion to us. You see, biblically remembering has less to do with the mind and more to do with an action. It has less to do with the past and more to do with bringing the past into the present. This is why the other word Paul uses for the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians 10 is a participation. I'll give you a couple of examples from this from the Bible to help you understand. This can be very unclear. Do you remember in the Old Testament when God's people would be going through suffering, distress, and they'd cry out to their Lord? And the biblical author says the Lord remembered them. In that moment, had God forgotten them from his mind? No. But God was choosing to participate with them in that moment. He was choosing to act on their behalf. I'll give you another one in the opposite way. When we read in Jeremiah and the Psalms that God will remember our sins no more, does that mean that God has mentally forgot everything that we've done? No. It means that he will not act according to that. That God will not act according to our sins. He doesn't participate with us according to our sins. And this is the same idea in the New Testament. When you hear Paul say things like, remember the poor. When Paul says, remember the poor, it's not just, okay, have a running list in your mind of all the poor people you know. He's saying participate with them. Remember the poor in such a way that you really participate in relieving of their needs. So what's going on when you take the Lord's Supper? What's going on when you practice this in remembrance of him? You are actually participating with Christ and therefore all his benefits for you. Not in a physical way. We don't believe that his body and blood are his physical body and blood, but in a spiritual way by the Holy Spirit. Thomas Watson said this, Christ physically sits at the right hand of God, but spiritually he sits with you at the Lord's Supper. Christ physically sits at the right hand of God, but when we partake of the Lord's Supper, he spiritually sits there right with us. This is why Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 that this cup is, Is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? This bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? You see, this bread and this wine are physical signs of his real spiritual presence. As real as this bread and wine are to you physically, the fact that you can see them and touch them and taste them and smell them is as real as Christ is to you by his spirit. In this meal, when we partake, he is actually strengthening your faith and nourishing your soul. Something is happening here 
for you. Jesus cares about us that much that he gave us a promise that we can touch. And that's exactly what your soul needs. The story goes that during World War II, thousands of children became orphaned in London during the German bombings. And the the children that were rescued were placed in refugee camps. And in those camps, they received really good care from the Allied forces. They received doctors and nurses and caretakers to take care of them and their needs. But even with that care, the children were so traumatized. And you can imagine losing everything, home and family and stability. And nighttime was the worst. At night, they just could not go to sleep, worried about all that had happened and what was to come. And it didn't matter how much they were told by their caretakers, you're going to be okay. It didn't matter that their caretakers said, you're safe now. You will be provided for. Their fears were bigger than their caretakers' words. Nothing seemed to reassure them until one doctor suggested they put a piece of bread in each of those orphans' hands as they were laying down to go to sleep. Giving each child a piece of bread to hold while they were laying in bed. And you know what happened? Over time, as they would hold that bread, they began to fall asleep. You see, all throughout the night, that bread became a promise they could actually touch. That bread said to them every night, today I ate and tomorrow I will eat again. The bread didn't replace their caretaker's words, it confirmed them. The bread didn't just act as a memory of their provision, it actually communicated that provision to them on a day-to-day basis. The bread in their hands eventually became more real to them than their deepest fears. They would be taken care of. You know that's exactly what God does for you in the Lord's Supper, don't you? The Lord's Supper is always the application of the word because the Lord's Supper confirms his word to you personally. The Lord's Supper is a promise of God that you can hold in your hands that over time speaks a greater word than our sins, than our doubts, than our guilt, than our fears. When you partake of the Lord's Supper, God is placing his promises in your hands because he knows you need them. He knows that you can't imagine a God that would actually love you. He knows that you have constant fears that God will leave you. He knows that your guilt speak more than, your, than his forgiveness. And he knows the bread and wine will eventually speak a better word. When everything in your heart is saying, where is God? Every week, the word and the meal say he is right here. He is right here for you. So you need the Lord's Supper this morning for whatever you're going through. Because it's more than just a memory, it's actually communion with your Savior. And it's not just for you, it's also for the world. So let's end there. We've seen the meal, we've seen the meaning, now let's finish with the mission. Look back at verse 26, the mission of the Lord's Supper. Paul ends with this, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Paul says the Lord's Supper is not just about our participation, but our proclamation. These words of institution that we read each week that give us so much encouragement did not come to the church of Corinth as an encouragement. They came to the church there as a rebuke. If you look back a few verses in 1 Corinthians eleven seventeen, and I encourage you to read the whole chapter to get the context sometime this week. 
Look back a few verses. Paul speaks to how divided the church is. And the meal that was meant for their communion together was actually being used for further division. You see, their division in that church at that time was between the rich and the poor. So at that time, what what would happen is in the Lord's Supper, everyone would bring their own elements to share as one body together. But the church of Corinth, when the rich would bring their own elements, they would not share them but keep them for themselves. In fact, it got so bad that Paul says in verse 20, and you can look there now, he says, when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? That's what Paul says. What is happening? What is happening that the rich are getting drunk off the Lord's Supper and the poor have nothing at all? And what is Paul's plan to fix this deep divide? The right practice of the Lord's Supper. Paul's answer for their church is the Lord's Supper practice rightly. And this is so important for us to see because Paul is saying the church's meal is also the church's mission. The Lord's Supper is a proclamation because what we do in here is what we'll do out there. That's why this is so important for Paul. You cannot separate those two. If there's divisions at this table, there'll be divisions at those tables. In our passage, Paul brings everything back to the Lord's Supper because how you eat at this table is how you will eat at every other table in the world. And this is proven true not just at the Church of Corinth, but tragically throughout history. Many of you all probably know some of the history of the apartheid in South Africa, the governmental policy that separated blacks and whites in the 20th century. What most people don't know about apartheid is that it actually started in the church. You see, the Dutch settled into South Africa during the 16th and 17th centuries. They established the first Dutch Reformed Church in 1652. That church continued to grow and grow and grow until in 1857 there was a request made to the General Assembly. And that request was for two separate services of the Lord's Supper. One for black members and one for white members. And the request was made out of a practical church growth strategy. The church was growing so much for everyone's comfort. It's probably best if we just separate. It'll be more comfortable for white people to eat together. It'll be more comfortable for black people to eat together. And the General Assembly uh, accepted their request. And over the next hundred years, that practice that first started in the church bled over into the community. So much so that in 1948, separation by race became the official government policy in South Africa. Do you see how powerful the Lord's Supper is? The church's meal is the church's mission. It is not only our participation with God, but it's our proclamation to the world. Where we look forward to an eternal banquet with our Savior where every tribe, every tongue, every people will feast together in the wedding supper of the Lamb. So in partaking of this meal, we actually get to proclaim and anticipate that world to come right now. In this meal together, we get to show the world not just the way it ought to be, but the way it will be. So church, what we do in here is what we'll do out there. In the world's division, let us eat together and anticipate unity. In the world's hatred, let us eat together and anticipate love. 
In the world's strife, let us eat together and anticipate forgiveness. In the world's grumbling, let us eat together and anticipate gratitude. In the Lord's Supper, let us eat together and proclaim our future reality right now for a world that desperately needs it. So how do you respond to all this? A meal given to us by our Savior, a meal that our Savior gives to participate with Him, to proclaim to the world. What do we do with all this? I hope the answer is obvious. Get to the table. Come to the table. At the invite of Jesus, come feast with your Savior. It's the same application we have every week. Come feast with your Savior. I love a story that was shared uh, with me this week by a pastor friend. It was a story of an NPR interview uh, with the author of Where the Wild Things Are, the popular uh, children's book. The author is Maurice Sendak. He's, he's passed away now, but it was a previous interview. And they asked Maurice Sendak, over the years, what are some of your favorite comments from your readers? You have such a wide, re- you're so popular. Where the Wild Things Are is one of the most beloved children's books of all time. What, what, what are some of the, your favorite comments from your readers? And he said his favorite one was from a little boy named Jim. Jim wrote him a little card that had a drawing on it of the wild things. And he said he usually just responds pretty quickly, but because this boy took a personal time to write out this note and to, and to draw this figure, he wanted to take a little bit more time with him. So he gave him an original drawing of a wild thing and told him, hey, Jim, I loved your card so much. He sent it off to him. Well, time goes on. He gets a letter back from the little boy's mother. And the little boy's mother wrote on there, Jim loved your card so much that he ate it. (laughs) He loved your card so much that he just had to eat it. That's the right response to the Lord's Supper. That's the right response to the Lord's Supper. The Lord loves you so much. Come to this table and participate in that love. The Lord loves you so much. Come to this table and proclaim that love to the world. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for your abundance, your love of us, your laughter, your feasting, your joy. May we receive it all now in this meal. Lord, for those that are hurting or struggling or suffering, Lord, may this meal be great comfort to them as they hold on to the bread and the wine and the juice. May you be closer to them than even those elements. Lord, we're so thankful for you. And now we pray as you taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts, as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not in temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom power and glory forever. Amen.